The Lord be with you. One of the great things about being part of a family, I think, is this recognition that um, God does take all of us, and He is with all of us. And no matter what we've done in the past or what we're going to do in the future, through Christ, we can have that relationship with God and with each other. And I hope you've enjoyed this little series that we've been looking at as far as how that gets kind of lived out. We're going to try to wrap it up a little bit today. Did any of you have parents who ever told you uh, to be careful who you, your friends are, to be careful who you select as friends? Anybody ever say that? Why did our parents tell us that? Any ideas about that? Because the kind of friends you have kind of determine your future a little bit, right? They shape us and mold us and form us. I really think that is true. The kind of people that we live with, the kind of people we hang out with, the kind of people we do life with, mold us and shape us into the kind of people we are. And I think that's another one of the beautiful things about being part of the family of God. So we're going to look at uh, kind of the last thing that Jesus had to say about this in this section of Scripture from John 14 through 17, the last part of his, what we call the high priestly prayer. So if you'd open up your Bibles with me, let's read this together. John chapter 17, John 17, starting with verse 20. We looked at the first part of this prayer last week and... uh, it really talked about how God is uh, always with us and how this kind of sense of abiding in Him and drawing life from Him shapes us and molds us to be His people. We didn't really get to the core of what I think this prayer is about. The, this, this prayer is really about oneness. It's about unity. Jesus is praying for the unity of His people. And so listen for that as we read together today. John chapter 17, starting with verse 20. This is Jesus praying. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. In them, I and you, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me, then even, and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is God's word and it's true and we can rely on it. I want to draw your attention to a little city in about 100 miles southeast of Rome and this town is called Rosetto of the Valley. And in this unremarkable little Italian village, there was a lot of really hardworking people. And for generations, they were miners, they mined marble, and they were farmers. And they were also desperately poor. And so, about in the, the end of the 19th century, the late 1800s, these people began to hear stories about a land of opportunity that was called America. And so in January of 1882, a group of 11 people from this village of Rosetta, Rosettans, set sail from Italy and they finally settled in Pennsylvania where they had found that there was a group of people who were beginning to mine slate. And since they were 
had some knowledge about mining, they took up this job also, and they worked very hard. And they sent word home. So the next year, 15 more Rosettans came, and over the next decade, there was actually a couple thousand people who migrated from this one village in Italy to this one village in Pennsylvania. And the hill country in Pennsylvania reminded them of Italy, and they continued to mine using practices they had learned for generations. And over the next 50 years, this little group of people built a town that was a lot like the town they had left. They built these little close clustered homes on these little narrow streets, and they made bakeries and wineries, and they built a Catholic church, and they were a very close-knit community. And, if, and they named their town Rosetta, by the way. So if you ever go through Pennsylvania, you'll find a little town called Rosetta, Pennsylvania. Now, nearly everyone in this town came from the same village back in Italy, and if you had gone into that village in the early 1900s, you would have thought you were in Italy. That's how much it kind of took on the character of their home village. So something interesting happened about this time. There was a doctor who lived in the area, and he started to study these people because he noticed something unique, and that was that the people who lived in this little village of Rosetto hardly ever got sick. And uh, people all around there actually got sick, and most people at that age, the most common ailment at that time, if you're under the age of 16, 65, was heart disease, to die from heart disease. Because this was the like 1950s when he did his study, and uh, there wasn't really any medicine for high cholesterol or blood pressure, and just about everybody smoked. So there was a lot of heart disease, except the people who lived in this village. And so they thought that they would study this. And they uh, had an, actually a kind of an ideal population because they were very close-knit. It was kind of a closed group. They lived within each other. So they had this kind of like perfect study group that they could look at. So they studied their genealogies. They studied their medical records. They studied their diet exercise habits, work environments. They studied all this stuff to try to figure out why these people had such healthy lives and such a low incidence, specifically of heart disease. And uh, the doctor who did this study actually wrote this. He also found in the middle of this study, there was no suicide, no alcoholism, no drug addiction, very little crime. They didn't have anyone on welfare. They didn't even have ulcers. So they wanted to know how this is the case. The actual death rate in this little village was about 35% lower than the average death rate throughout the rest of the country. So here's what they found when they did their research. These people all cooked with lard instead of olive oil. They ate more red meat, sausage, salami, ham, eggs, and milk than anyone else. They ate more sweets. They never exercised. They smoked heavily, and most of them were overweight. So, what do you think contributed to the longevity of the people who lived in this little village? Rosetta, Pennsylvania. What? No stress? Faith, family, love. The only thing they could conclude after this extensive research was that they loved each other. They lived together in community. This family, or this village, was so wrapped up in each other's lives. They found things like they uh, stopped in the middle of the street to chat with each other. They lived close to each other, and most families had three generations living in the same house. They constantly ate meals together. The elderly were held in high regard. They worshipped every single Sunday. They served together. In fact, service was a big part of this 
In this little town, at that time the population was 2,000 people, there was 22 separate civic organizations to do good things for the people in the community. These people were united in love. And the researchers concluded that this was almost a magical village because this depth of community contributed, though they did many things wrong with their health, this contributed to the overall well-being and health of the community. They loved each other. I found that was interesting because as I was reading through this prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus seems to be praying the same kind of prayer, that community, that living together as one, actually brings life. This is sometimes a surprise to me because I've grown up, as many of you have, in a world that really kind of is about individualism and everybody for your own, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, make the best of yourself, a a community that's really individualistic. This is the world that we live in. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying that we will be one. This is what Jesus says, remember? As you, Father, are in me and I am in them, may they also be in us that the world may believe that you sent us. As we are one, make them one. I think this is kind of the nature of our being family. The Father is in the Son, and if you listen to this whole prayer, it actually, he gets to these points over and over again. The Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father. We, as believers, are in the Father and the Son, and the Son is in us. And we have got this little diagram to kind of illustrate all of these particular relationships. The very definition of what it means for us to be followers of Jesus Christ, to be in community, is on this screen right here. We believe nothing ever changes the fact that the Father and the Son are one together. And nothing ever changes the fact that believers who come to faith in Jesus Christ, their life comes from dwelling in the Son, and the Son dwells in them, lives in them. This is the gift that God has given to us as community. And Jesus prays that we will know this And I think his prayer is kind of an interesting one because the nature of this goes way beyond simply saying, oh, I have a kind of cerebral understanding of what it means for the Father to be in the Son, the Son to be in the Father, for believers to be in the Father and the Son, and for us to be in the Son, and the Son to be in us. It's not just something I know. It's something that I get, something that I experience. It's something that I live out in my day-to-day life. Nothing can ever change the fact that we are one because of this reality But his prayer goes much deeper than that. He says, I want you to know this. I want you to, I would maybe substitute the experience, know for experience. I want you to experience this reality of living the oneness that is ours by definition. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known to them in order that the love that you have will be in them and I myself will be in them. You see this language is repeated over and over and over again throughout this prayer. That we know Jesus and the Father are one. Nothing ever separates them. And because of that, we are one also. Our life together is actually modeled on this relationship that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have together as one that they may be one as we are one. This is Jesus. If I was going to pick a refrain from this prayer to say over and over again, that would be the refrain that pops out at me, that they may be one, Jesus says, as we are one. So this oneness is not just theoretical. It's to be lived out. And I wanted to try to like kind of model this. So I've actually got three volunteers that are going to 
three couples who are going to help me uh, illustrate this. If you guys want to come on up now. I'm going to put these people into a little pose for you so that you can kind of get a picture of oneness. Why don't you, Christy and Dennis, stand here in the middle? Okay, I'm going to start here with the... You guys have been almost, almost 50, 49 years, coming up on 49 years. Okay, I want you to face each other, and I want you to hold hands like that. Oh, the, see, you, you guys are just the right ones for this. Okay, this is what I want you to do. I want Chrissy to face this way, and I want Dennis to face this way, and I want you to put your hands... Okay? I got and then I want you... No, you're going to be like this, and you're going to be facing him, and I want you to put your hands right around his neck. Okay, so here I got three pictures of how you might live your life together, okay? We've got the newlyweds on this end who are deeply in love, gazing into each other's eyes. I'm going to let you guess what's going on here with this couple right here, and then you can figure out what Jan is doing to to Alan here. Okay, so my question for you would be this. Of these three married couples, which ones are in unity? This one? What about this one? What about this one? Yeah, <laughs> they're tied together. Okay. Here's, I think, what the theory... I think that image we had up here of the circles, I think, tells us this. They're all three in unity. Right? Everyone, they're married couples. They've made this commitment to say, we're one. This is what we do at weddings. We say, we're agreeing to be one, no matter what, better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and health. We're one. Nothing ever changes that, Right? So they're all unified in that way, right? Which, one, which ones are experiencing unity? <laughs> yeah, okay. So we can say we're one and nothing ever changes that, no matter what kind of experience we're having in the moment. But to experience it, we have to live a certain way, right? We behave a certain way as a family, and when we're behaving that way, we go, oh my gosh, isn't this sweet? Isn't it wonderful for us to be able to enjoy and to experience this? So let's give these guys a... Did anybody get a picture of this to put out there on the tweet? Take a picture of that, okay. This is what I'm wondering about when I read about this little village in Pennsylvania and I read this prayer from John chapter 17. I'm starting to wonder, uh, are we as a family experiencing unity? Because I'm going to make the case over and over and over again that we are one. And by definition, never, ever, nothing ever changes the fact that we are one because in Christ, we are one. We're made one. Are we experiencing that? Are we living in oneness together as a community? That's the question that I have in my mind. And what would it look like if we started to live that way? Jesus gives us at least one clue about what it would look like if we live together in unity and begin to experience it. And this is actually, I think, part of the kind of weird part of Jesus' prayer here. The stated purpose of this unity is not even really about us. The stated purpose is that the world may believe. The unity is given so that others may be brought into that same kind of love that we're experiencing. God's purpose is, is... in drawing our lives together into oneness and for us to be able to experience that oneness is that the good news about the thing that God wants to do in this world to bring his kingdom would go out to everybody else. That they would see in our experience of oneness the world. This is, this is what I heard you share in your story. That you came to this community that was a Christian community and you started to recognize something immediately. 
I'm guessing even before they preached at you or described anything or talked to you about anything, you began to see, well, they're living their life together differently. Well, look at this group. They love each other. This is Jesus' prayer for us, that the world would look at us and say, look how they love each other. I see another place where this was lived out. If you're, if you're in Alan's class, maybe you've dissected this a little more carefully, but if you look at the beginning chapters in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4 especially, there's two different passages where it talks about the Christian community coming together in the power of the Spirit, and they met together daily, and they broke bread, and they gathered in the temple, and they prayed, and they had everything in common, and both those passages end with the same expression at the end of that. What happened after the community gathered together and loved each other and lived in community? What happened? The Lord added daily to the number of those who believed. That because they were living this community out and experiencing this oneness that Jesus had prayed for, that the community grew. Because other people came and they saw, you know what? That is what love looks like, lived out in a family that's one. So I think there's three realities that jump out at me from this prayer, and that reality is, number one, we are one. Nothing ever changes that. But there's also this opportunity, secondly, to experience oneness, for us to figure out how can we live together in a way that makes that oneness apparent to everyone. And then the third point that jumps out to me is that when we live like that, that oneness reaches the world. That oneness reaches out beyond us to all those who are living in the community around us. Our community is meant to be an expression of God's love that extends the gospel beyond that first generation of disciples to the next generation and to the next generation to the next generation, and it continues to carry out because we are family, and we are one, and we live together in that oneness. Now, if loving each other in community matters, as it did for the people in Rosetto, giving them good health, how much more does it even matter for us who think we're offering something more than just good health for now. We're offering people kind of a good, good health for eternity, right? Then would our living together in oneness be even that much more important? And do we realize that the reason many times that the world outside our doors struggles with Christianity is because they don't think we're very loving, they think that we're mean, they think that we're judgmental, they think that we don't care. And would the world experience the church differently if we just loved each other that much better? And not just theoretically, but if we experienced that love and experienced that oneness just that much better. These are the kind of questions that I wonder about. And I'm concerned because the world often sees the church, you know, bicker and argue and fight and blame and judge and shame and shake our heads in disgust and tear each other down. And who would want to be a part of that? And I'm concerned about the church as a whole, but I'm not just concerned about any old church. I'm concerned about our church. And how do we grow as a place that says, we really love each other. And we experience that love as we live out together. So I'm trying to figure out how that, what that looks like. And I'm back in Rosetta, Pennsylvania. And it occurred to me that while the rest of the world was struggling with this rampant heart disease, there was a whole community of people with healthy hearts. And they were doing everything wrong. They were fat people smoking two packs a day, eating bacon at every meal, and they washed it down with whole milk and alcohol. That was the community life together. So they got a bunch of details wrong, but they got one thing right. 
They did it together. Which gives me hope for us. Because we are all broken, aren't we? And we're trying to build a community of broken people. And I, there's a an sign, I think it's down on First Avenue, one of the churches down there has on their sign, their church sign, no perfect people welcome. Have you seen that sign out there? Well, that motto would fit us too, right? No perfect people welcome. Can a bunch of imperfect, broken, messed up people love each other really well? We can. And that's exactly what Jesus was praying for us in John chapter 17, that we would learn to love each other that well. So Christ's prayer here, it's not a prayer for theological oneness or doctrinal purity. It's not really about vision alignment or strategic unity. It's not about ideological oneness and political agreement. It's really not that even concerned with morality or ethical principles. His high priestly prayer is rooted in one thing, and that is we're one. And our living together, experiencing that oneness, makes all the difference in the world. So I got one more thought, and this is from another researcher. Her name is Brene Brown. Has anybody read any of her stuff? Brene Brown? Uh, she is brilliant, and I think it's really helpful. Her research is about um, people and what makes people vulnerable and what makes people love. It's really fascinating stuff. And she d- divides the whole world into about two categories that are roughly equal. The first category is people who experience a deep sense of love and belonging. Okay, so group one is people who experience love deeply. And group two is people who don't experience love and belonging. They, they don't feel loved. And she spent a lot of years looking at these two groups carefully. And you know what the difference is between these two groups? The difference is those who experience a deep sense of love and belonging believe deep down inside that they are worth it. That they are worthy of being loved that they're worthy of belonging. Those people who don't experience a deep sense of belonging feel like they're not worthy. Which brings us to this wonderful part of our service when we experience the Lord's Supper together. And in this table today, the thing I'd like you to think about is the fact that we have a Savior who has come for us and offered his life on the cross to pay for our brokenness, to pay for our sin, to pay for the ways that we're not worthy. And in doing that, you know what he's done? He's made us worthy. We are made worthy of love. We're made worthy of belonging because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So I want you to think about that as we begin this uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper by doing a little self-examination. Now, the prayer of self-examination is often uh, presented as, you know, we're supposed to look into our lives and we're supposed to discover those things that maybe kept us separated from God and confess those. And... It might be tempting to interpret that prayer of self-examination as like inviting us to make ourselves worthy. But that's not what it's doing at all. It's asking the central question, do we really believe that even though we are broken people, we have been made worthy because of what Jesus Christ has done for us? And that's what we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So I'd like you to take a few moments of silence, look into your own heart, confess those places where there's a barrier between you and God, and ask for God to uh, make you worthy. So let's pray together.
God, we don't come to this table because we uh, deserve it or because we've earned any right or privilege to meet you at this time. But we come to this table because you invite us and you make us worthy partakers. And so, God, we thank you for that and we pray that in this time you would nourish us and feed us by the body and blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. We come to this table and we come to abide. As we read in John 15, the branch abides in the vine and draws life. So we.